Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. In today's episode, I wanted to take a look at the facts and fiction of the Underground Railroad. That's right, we're going to explore what is known truth and what is a myth about this unique period in history. A large portion of the Underground Railroad came through Michigan, and this is going to be a fascinating journey back in time. However, we will not be taking this journey alone. Today I have back on as my guests, my good friends with the Underground Railroad Society of Cass County, who joined me on a show in season one, Mike Moroz, who is the president of the society, Cindy Yawkey, who serves as the co-chair of the education committee for the society. And joining the show for the first time is Jennifer Ray, who works with the organization as the chair of the Brownsville School, which we're going to explore some of that history today. So welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Michael. Well, Mike, let's start with you. You serve as the president of the URSCC. When you were last on, we talked about the restoration progress on some of these historic landmarks that you've been working on. How's that? How's those projects coming along? Well, first of all, Michael, thank you for having us. We do appreciate your interest and we appreciate the exposure that you're giving us on this platform. It's been a very busy year. Uh, work has been ongoing on all four properties. Uh, I'll give you examples of all four properties of uh, what we've been doing over the last year or so. Uh, starting with the benign house, uh, we are at a, a point where we can deal with aesthetics, which is fun and different because we've been under so much construction and reconstruction. Um, we've been able to get some interior painting done. The walls on the first floor have been done. Uh, some exterior painting uh, around the windows. Um, we've been working on the parlor hearth and mantle to restore that. And wow. uh, we finalized the uh, installation of uh, a, a modern kitchen, uh, which will be functional for our groups and people who want to uh, use the house. So it's wow. been fun uh, doing that type of work on, on the benign house. Well, so it's going to be a really functional space for um, bringing people or groups in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yes, it will. And like I say, these are things that really kind of decorate the house now. Um, mm -hmm. We also restored um, the 1870 remodel um, stencil on the ceiling in the living room, was, which is quite an artistic and architectural uh, artifact that we were able to restore uh, with a couple local experts and Cindy's help. And uh, we were um, really excited to get that done. And it is quite, it's quite something to see. Um, moving on to the carriage house, um, we had to do an environmental study of phase one and phase two. Because the, really? carriage, house, the carriage house had a gas, uh, gas station in it back in the 1940s and 50s. And uh, before we could go forward with our plans, we had to make sure that we were environmentally safe. So we had a GPR done. With that, it is ground penetrating radar. And mm -hmm. uh, to detect if there are any fuel tanks still in the ground. And I'm happy to report that the tanks had been removed uh, decades ago. 
and uh, there isn't any uh, sign of tanks or anything like that any longer. So we, we seem to be in the clear when it comes to an environmental issue on the carriage house. So that was quite a, quite a big hurdle. Wow. And uh, the Bogue house, we've been able to expose the post and beam, hand-hewn beams um, of the 1820s, what is called a squatter's cabin which wow. we knew of the story, but we had no real proof of. So um, Kathy and I, oh, I'm sorry, Cindy and I uh, removed some of the paneling that was installed in the 1960s, I believe 1959, actually. And we were able uh -huh. to find the uh, original posts that were part of that and uh, other elements of the uh, 1930s addition on that house. We also were able to restore the facade of the Bogue house by having the 1959 chimney removed, uh, which makes the house oh. look like it did originally. Uh, so that was very important to the history of the house. Wow. So Cindy, you serve as the co-chair of the education committee with the organization. Can you take us through a few of the myths that people seem to have about the Underground Railroad? Yes, uh, Michael. Uh in the beginning, a lot of people actually thought there was a train that went underground <laughs> and brought slaves from the south up to the north. Uh -huh. And some people kind of looked disheartened when I explained to them that there was no train going underground. Uh -huh. And um, the other myth is, for us, it's about the Bonine Tower. A lot Not of people really. thought that the Bonine Tower was used to watch out for slave catchers as they came mm -hmm. and to single the, the to the slave cat, to the freedom seekers that it was a safe place to stop. Right. The tower wasn't added on until 1870 after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So that was a myth that uh, we had to clear up and mm -hmm. about the tower. Well, I've come across a lot of myths in my time of doing videos about the subject or talking about it. And one of the ones that came across my lines of earlier this year was somebody posted on Facebook, oh, there was a story about how everybody who was helping along the way would put a candle in the window and then the the people that were seeking freedom would show up at their door and knock and be let in. And that was the signal. And I said, that's that's all fabrication. I mean, the candle of the window probably came from a World War II thing or something. But, uh, yeah, that was they were all usually accompanied. And when they were in Michigan, they were accompanied with a uh, conductor that was taking, you know, taking them through clandestinely through um, station to station on the Underground Railroad. You know, it wasn't. Nobody was wandering alone in those days. On, on um, the... um, uh, Ben Wilson, uh, he talked about it. He said, you know, in the beginning, they were just running for freedom. Mm -hmm. right. They didn't have the Underground Railroad yep. to um, seek that uh, next safe haven. Mm -hmm. They were just running. Um, and a lot of times they would get caught and um, taken back into slavery. Mm -hmm. um, and so when the Underground Railroad came into being, it helped um, transport uh, 1,500 people through this area mm -hmm. of uh, Michigan. 
on their yeah. way to Canada. It's quite a lot of people. And it also, the Underground Railroad wasn't just in Michigan. It went up through into New yeah. York and uh, Ohio and places like that. But uh, well, we had a great for, number. Uh, for us here in uh, Cass County, mm-hmm. we're, we're actually a junction on the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. We have the Quaker line that comes from Kentucky into Ohio, into Indiana, and then into Michigan. Yep. And we have the Illinois line that runs from Illinois into Indiana and into Michigan right. and on up. Yep. So that's um, us here in Cass County. That's our two lines. Yep. And over in Calhoun County, we had it come, it came from, when it came from Cass, they split and they went two different directions, but they also, they combined around Climax came on into Battle Creek and across over into Marshall, over to Jackson and Parma. I think it was Parma instead of Jackson. And then um, Grass Lake was another stop. And then they continued on um, over into, I guess, across Ann Arbor up into where they crossed over in Detroit. Or they, at Battle Creek, they went north on a different route up through, um, they crossed near Port Huron, area up near up that area there was another route that went up that way through charlotte uh, but that wasn't as, as well traveled as the one straight across to jackson and that direction but uh it's a fascinating history um so jennifer in november of 2022 the society purchased the historic brownsville school number one which was built in 1840 now, i imagine you guys are really excited to have acquired this can you take us through some of the history of this building? Sure. Uh, well, while we're still searching for an exact date that the school was constructed, we know that Brownsville Number 1 was established in the 1940s. Uh, the Greek Revival architecture has been verified as reflective of the era. And we also have mm-hmm. documents that tell us the school was there uh, in 1846 tax assessments for Isaac Hull, who was the owner of the property at at that time. Uh, He has a tax assessment with a $23.40 charge owed to him by the township for school taxes. And so we know that a school uh, existed in Calvin Township uh, at that time. And we are very, very uh, certain we're that it was Brownsville, number one. We we have done some wow. research that says schools were numbered as they were constructed, mm-hmm. uh, but we we haven't got the exact date of construction uh, in a document uh, yet. We also okay. have a report uh, of the Superintendent of Public Instruction uh, for the state of Michigan that was published in 1841, and it, it shows that four schools were present in Calvin Township at that time. Hmm. Two of those schools reported. I, man, reporting to the superintendent must not have been mandatory, but two huh. schools were shown as reporting to the superintendent in 1841, okay. and they were schools number one and two. So if Brownsville indeed was school number one, it reported in 1841, wow. saying that perhaps the presence was there earlier than than um, than 1846, uh, though we have documentation for that 1846. So wow. it's uh, we we know that it was definitely present in the forties. Um, the most exciting thing about uh, ha- having acquired the school is that it has quite an extraordinary story to tell. 
Uh, mm-hmm. it, it kind of expands or extends the story of the Underground Railroad in Cass County because the 1850 census, and we have no question, this is certainly fact, not um, fiction or myth mm-hmm. of any kind. The 1850 census shows that black and white children went to school together in Calvin Township. And really? we assume oh. that Brownsville School, number one, was the first school built in the township, so it would be the longest public one-room elementary school that was integrated, in, oh. certainly in, in the area, although many other schools in Calvin Township, as they were constructed and established, were integrated also. But we do believe that Brownsville was the first integrated public elementary school in Cass County, and perhaps even in the state of Michigan or beyond. Uh, We know that uh, plenty of private schools were integrated. There was the Raisin Institute, for example. Many others, private schools, were seen integrated. Detroit uh, and Ann Arbor Public Schools integrated in the uh, 1870s after the Civil War. But most other uh, public schools did not integrate until the mid-20th century. So this could be in a kind of a, a, a unique and inspirational situation with the Brownsville mm. School. Uh, we do know there was a public school in Lowell, Massachusetts that was integrated in 1831, but it was a high school. We do not find, and much research has been conducted, other elementary schools that were integrated this early on. Wow. So and that, how many kids would have been there at the school? Do you Did oh, you get like a count? Yes, in the 1850 census, oh boy, and I didn't write that down, but I know that in the superintendent's record book, there were around 60 children in the school. Wow. Uh, I, I would have thought it was like a low number of, you know, less than 20 during that era, but wow. Yeah. A one-room schoolhouse with 60 children in it? Now, and somewhere I read that uh, it could seat 100, but it wow. it seems small for that, but by wow. our standards. <laughs> But that I know I read that 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 could accommodate 100 students. But, yeah. Well, I guess we're looking at the photograph. I see that it is a lot bigger than perhaps some of the other one-room schoolhouses I've seen in my area. That I guess you could get and seeing the size of the door there on the photo. I guess you could have gotten 60 kids in. It must have been uh, quite a a cozy little setup for the for all the kids, you know. Right. Were there any original benches or desks or anything with the when you bought uh, it? No, or? there there are blackboards that we oh, think are okay. original. Um, not to say they they couldn't perhaps have been upgraded somewhere along the line, but they are definitely uh-huh. uh, slate uh, boards. Uh, uh-huh. We have uh, we know where the original clock is. I don't know if we're going to receive it or not. We do also have a promise, though, of receiving the original pot-bellied stove that was in the school. Oh, and that's there cool. is another school in Penn Township, not too far from uh, Calvin, that knows that they are are unlikely to be able to restore their one-room schoolhouse, and they do have desks, and they have uh, promised them to us. So we may have desks from another local uh, school to put in to Brownsville. Okay. So, Mike, you cannot study the Underground Railroad in Michigan without taking into account the important role that Cass County played in this route. Can you 
talk about some of the myths that you may have heard in your time with working on this project? I think one of the biggest ones is where are the tunnels? And everybody wants to know where the <laughs> yeah. tunnels were that uh, would sneak the freedom seekers from one building to the next. And right. I can say we don't have any at this point in time. Did they exist? There's a possibility they did. Unlikely yeah. that it came from a house um, because it was illegal to help freedom seekers at that time. You mm -hmm. could lose your property. But more than likely, it probably went from an, a barn to another barn or a barn to an outbuilding, perhaps. But right. there are no tunnels that we know of. And, uh, and when we had the GPR done in the carriage house, they didn't find any anomaly, at least between the old gas station and the highway that would represent a void in the ground. So we're still hopeful that there might be something uh, there, but um, so far uh, we have not, not seen anything. That's probably one of our biggest questions or mysteries that we have yet to solve. Okay. Well, I've heard the tunnel story before in reference to buildings around here, but there's really no pictorial reference to that that confirms it. And I wasn't able to identify any kind of uh, actual writing that's that alluded to it existed, you know, but mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. they did find some basements that had hidden rooms in them in one of the houses where Erastus Hussey had when mm -hmm. they demolitioned the house in years ago. But mm -hmm. that's that brings me up another story because that's another thing that people get uh, into. They buy an old house and they say, oh, well, maybe it was on the Underground Railroad. And I've had people tell me that too. Oh, maybe this was stop on the Underground Railroad. And the likelihood of that being your house would have had to have been built before 1863 for it mm -hmm. to have actually been used on the Underground Railroad because... Right. According to Erastus Hussey, who was the only station master that I'm aware of that actually did an interview, he said that all traffic stopped as soon as the Emancipation Proclamation happened. You know, so the, mm -hmm. the Underground Railroad was over at right. that point. And so that's the you know, that was January 1st. So it was probably late 1862 that so it was only the first couple of years of the Civil War itself. Mm -hmm. And there's not many houses that were necessarily built during that time because all the men were off the war or a lot mm -hmm. of them were, you know, so it's it's uh, have, has to have been much older, usually than 1860 to have something. Uh, uh, I mean, wouldn't you say that's 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 got to be true for your area, too, because there's no there was no need to. The, they were free at that point. You know? That's right. Yeah, we have no evidence of there being any other activity. There was really no need to. Um, you yeah. know, the Civil War was over. Um, the the slave catchers weren't were no longer coming up, taking back their quote property back to the planters, um, that type of thing. Um, so yeah, that that does seem to fit into you know the the, the historical record. Yep, and they were usually um, single homes, and there was only very particular ones. Um, I, and Racist Hussey said where they were here in Battle Creek, all of those are gone. None of them were standing. And someone came to me when I did a story on a tavern that was called Barney's Tavern in town here. This, the building is still there and they've been restored, but the owners thought it had been an underground railroad because there were some hidden rooms. I said, no, that was likely Prohibition era 
stuff that you're looking yep. at there. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we had a lot of hidden rooms in old houses that for prohibition where they hid the liquor and that's very likely, but uh, they wouldn't have kept an, a fugitive slave in a public place like a tavern. It would have been like a farmhouse like you guys. I think you're the only one that has the only ones I've heard that have standing buildings. You guys have probably have the most in Michigan is uh, in, at the Cass County. Uh, but there's one over in Schoolcraft, I think, is still standing as part of a museum. And there's That's one right. in Union City that I'm aware of, the Zimmerman House in Union City. Um, and there's an interesting story with that one, too, with the Zimmerman bones they found in the attic. Really? Um, somewhere wow. many years later. Yeah. And they, they had to, they called the police in they did identified, you know, there was a, they weren't all the same person. There were different bones and um, speculation on how they got there and what they were. Some kids found them playing in the attic. They found, pulled back some part of wall and they pulled out a bone and they didn't, they found all these old bones in the attic. Oh my so, goodness. So I can't imagine what you can only let your imagination. Maybe somebody died and they hit a body or they amputated a leg or, or something, you know, maybe somebody got shot and that was the solution because they were on the run, you know, interesting. Yeah. So those are all crazy stories. You know, the bones were all buried in one site at union city cemetery. We've had a guest on that that story. And so, and there, there may be some other standing buildings uh, farther east that i'm not aware of because i'm not very familiar with that history out that way so there may be some towards between marshall and detroit i don't know of any in marshall but there could very well be because there's a lot of old buildings still in marshall but uh Mm -hmm. most of the ones that i'm aware of are gone so any other um story you were there mentioned the story about ramp town that there was some myths and facts about ramp town and its location that Kathy LaPointe had, had mentioned. Does anybody want to talk about that? Um, in the beginning, everybody thought that Ramptown was like just a bunch of scattered out little areas. Mm-hmm. And we found out that Ramptown, James E. Evil 9 in 1853 purchased Section 33. Oh. 40 acres and he invited free blacks and freedom seekers to come clear the land Mm -hmm. they could use the wood to build their houses they could use it for firewood they could sell it they could work for anybody that they wanted to save up their money buy their own farms it became known as ramp town because of the wild leeks that grow in our area Oh, is that the and name of a particular leak out there called Ramp it's, or something? It's or? Wild leaks. Right. Uh, they're well, called ramps. Wow. Okay. And uh, their children got to uh, go to school. Um, Western Michigan came down and did an archaeological dig on the site mm-hmm. and found artifacts on that site. Wow. So, do, are you able to keep those artifacts in your museum or? Um, I think the artifacts are at Western right now, Mike. Okay, yeah. Mike okay. might no more, I think. They would be at Western, I'm sure. We don't have any Western. of those uh, uh, artifacts from the Ramp Town excavation. But there were there were reports of local farmers, um, or even, I believe, Elwood, Bonine, recalling hitting foundation, stone foundations after the cabins had been long gone and still hmm. running into when he was plowing the field, still running into these 
stones and other elements that would have been um, cabins that had been uh, a part of Ramp Town. So it was a, 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 a little village, if you will, by itself, um, kind of a self, self-contained uh, mm-hmm. area for these people to live and worship and perhaps go to school and, and uh, you know, have your garden and sell your garden goods and, and uh, mm-hmm. flourish, really. And how is it in proximity to these other homes, the Bog- Bonin House and the uh, Bonin Carriage House and the, the Brownsville School? I mean, where is it? Help us with the geography. Are they close by? Is that? Yes. Um, they, um, Ramp Town is just uh, southwest of the Carriage House, maybe a quarter of a mile down uh, Calvin hmm. Center Road from from um, the Bonine House in the Carriage House. Okay. Is there anything there today, like a historic marker or a building or anything? Um, we have a, a sign on the side of, on the west side of Calvin Center that says Ramp Town, Section mm-hmm. 33. Interesting. Okay. Are there any other myths about other types of signals or anything that you guys have heard about the Underground Railroad? There was a mention of the quilts story that someone had brought up um a lot of people thought they were hidden symbols in the quilt mm-hmm. um there weren't uh, um there's a story from indiana that i heard of um a guy said that his great great grandmother um who was part of the underground railroad would hang out her quilt hmm. uh, to let them know it was a safe house to stop at well, Indiana was diff- quite different than Michigan because Indiana was like the point of where they were escaping. They were coming across the river. You know, they were on their own up until that before they get into the hands of the Quakers, usually when they got into Indiana. So, you know, before that, they were on their own. Uh, that's that's interesting. That that could very well be something that has some authenticity to it, you know. It's hard to but, say, um, though. How would, how would they know that that's, unless... I guess rumor. Yeah, it, you know, or, it's uh, a lot of um, uh, our history is um, based on uh, or, uh, oral tradition, mm-hmm. and then we have to, like we're doing right now, is taking and saying these are the facts and this is the myth, and right. you know, clearing up the myths and the facts about the Underground Railroad. So, yeah. Yeah. there's there's always an effort to romanticize it and make it. Everybody had, you know, there's a um, a kind of an ongoing joke that's said by one of my other guests. He said, everybody believes they have an underground railroad house and everyone also believes they have a, a hiding location for Al Capone, you know, yeah. <laughs> in Michigan, you know, and the truth is, is uh, there were very few of those of both of those types, you know, Um I've heard quite often too, Michael. I've heard too a lot people who live along uh, rivers, yeah. uh, either in Niles or perhaps Constantine, and there are a uh-huh. lot of houses that uh, have tunnels from the creek or from the river into their home or into their building, and right. um, perhaps some of those were. I don't know. I, I don't know those histories, but a lot of that was to carry goods that were being um, transported along the river. 
right. at the time when there were no roads to speak of other than two tracks, you know, just cart uh-huh. cart tracks. The rivers were really our, our thoroughfares, and those tunnels were probably used to get goods into a building or into a hotel or into a, a facility. Right. And uh, then, then years later, all these years later, they think it's an underground railroad tunnel when, it, in fact, it was just a, to carry goods right. into a, a town. Yeah, it may have had some use in the Prohibition era for sure, but it certainly sure. wasn't Underground Railroad. You know, that's uh, that was a little too sophisticated for the 1850s and 60s, you know. Right. Uh, so when people come to tour, um, there's the four buildings. You have one that's not open yet. The Brownsville is opening when next year? Is that the plan? Um, hopefully 2024. Uh-huh. Is that okay. what, are, are, is, that's what Kathy has written up in her uh, latest um, school, I, no, right. sorry, a facility uh, mission statement okay. that uh, the school will open to the public in 2024. Now, right. I'm sure that is all dependent on uh, many of the uh, structural improvements that must be done to make the building stable. And Mike can talk much more uh, mm-hmm. intelligently to that part of the project. What's what's the long term uh, plans for the Brownsville School, Mike? When it gets finished and opened, and what's it going to look like? And um, long term, our our biggest items right now are the roof and foundation. Um, mm-hmm. We're just trying to we're just trying to stabilize it now. It's I'll be honest with you, it's in rough shape. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, stone foundation slowly crumbling, um, but we've been shoring it up with uh, stones and blocks. And uh, the roof, uh, we've been trying to get a tarp over it. That tarp has blown, one tarp has blown off. We're trying to get another oh. one on. So those are our emergencies um, as soon as possible. Once it's stabilized and dried out, then we can go in and start the demo process of removing the rotted floorboards, um, you know, the old plaster that's cracked and fallen, and then All bringing right. that back. Uh, the original windows are still there. I love old windows, and these are uh, what they call six over six. There's six small panels on the upper sash and six small panels of glass on the lower sash. We can start the restoration on those. Um, it's going to be very time-consuming, but as Jennifer noted, you know we, we have to stabilize it and make it safe. And uh, big ticket items for sure, um, but we hope to possibly get that underway here this spring. Oh, that's great. And the other three houses, are they part of your tour now that are in operation? Is that? Uh, yes. Um, uh, the Bonine house is open. Mm-hmm. The carriage house is open. You can go to the first and the second floor of the carriage house. Okay. Um, hopefully um, sometime this year or maybe next, we'll have the third floor open at the carriage house and the Bogue House is open as well. Okay. And uh, you can. Are they all within walking distance of each other, or do you have to drive to each location? Um, you have to drive unless you really want to test your physical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's a little yeah. different trip to the museum. You're going to be going travel time between each of the, the properties, but they're worth seeing, obviously, cause, and they have. Uh, exhibits set up inside some of them that uh, there's a there's a bookstore with a lot of information available and what what else can they see when they when they visit Cindy? Um, so um, at the Bonine House, our second floor 
is our educational floor. Mm-hmm. We have the research library. We have the underground railroad room. We have the Quaker room. We have the Calvin room. Wow. And those areas are what I call, what I do now is I warn people. I go, when you get up there, there is so much information to take mm-hmm. in. You may be up there for a while. So if I don't hear you, I know that you have found something that really interested you. And right. on the first floor we have, it's our office and we have um, t-shirts and mugs and things available to purchase here. Uh-huh. Um, we have free information um, that you can get. Um, you can download our 20 site driving tour map uh-huh. and you can pick up one at Milo Barnes Park in Vandalia as well. Okay. And at the, at the Bogue House, um, we have on the second floor, um, Ruth Andrews, a local artist. Um, she did a four panel, panel um, talking about the, telling the story of the Kentucky slave raid. Okay. It's in there. Um, it is actually her original paintings that are in there. And um, there is uh, free information there as well. Great. So when do you the officially open, Mike? Is it uh, you have a official time of year? I know we're kind of coming towards the end of winter soon, and uh, yeah, spring is we, around uh, the corner, hopefully. Yeah, we we are officially open between uh, June and uh, September. Um, okay. But if if the weather permits, and if we have some docents that are available. We will mm-hmm. oftentimes open it um, maybe a little earlier, and if the weather permits, keep it open a little later in the uh, season. Um, if you drive by the house and you see the open signs out, stop on in, because that means we have one or two docents in there that are willing to bring you in and show you around, and mm-hmm. uh, it just depends upon that. We also have a, a wax museum, fourth and fifth grade students from uh, Cassopolis and also a class from Portage that does a wax museum. And we will have those dates finalized. Uh, that'll be coming up here uh, this spring, um, here in the next month or two, uh, depending upon this, the class's schedule. And that's a very interesting and fun project where the, the students will each take upon themselves a character of the Underground Railroad and they'll mm-hmm. dress in costumes and will will tell who they are when you press the button on their hand and they come to life uh, as, a, <laughs> as a, a wax museum might might be. So uh, oh. that's fun. So check our website. And we'll have those dates posted as soon as we find out. You're all everyone's willing uh, or welcome to uh, email us. Go to our website, urscc.org. And mm-hmm. if you want a tour, especially and we're not open. Um, please get with us. Uh, we can schedule uh, somebody to be there to give uh, a person or a group a private tour. So that right. allows people to get in there maybe sooner than waiting until June, uh, May or June, if they want to get in. So contact us. We'll try to schedule something with you that way. So we're quite flexible and uh, we're always willing and happy to bring uh, people through, whether it be an individual or groups or classes. Uh-huh or retirement centers. We've had all sorts of uh, people come through there and uh, just let us know what you'd like from us and we'll do what we can to, uh, to, to supply that to you. 
Right. That's great. And all of these buildings that they will be touring were places that people sought refuge on the Underground Railroad. They were there were places where they were hidden or kept uh, on the uh, on the route, or is it um, some of them went and lived in Ramptown, but others were continued on the route? Is that what happened there, Mike? Uh, well, yeah, the, the Benign House itself was the home of James E. and Sarah Benign, who were Quaker abolitionists. Mm -hmm. So okay. the actual, the carriage house is right across the street. So it's basically walking distance or a, a quick little drive across the street to get to the carriage house. The carriage house mm -hmm. is an actual um, station. Uh, the freedom okay. seekers were in the carriage house, so that makes okay. it, you know, special in that regard. They were housed on the third floor, um, so okay. um, that that is a a station um, there being with James E and Sarah being um, station masters, as they called it. The Bogue right. house is about a mile down the street to the west. Uh, mm -hmm. on the corner of Crooked Creek and uh, M60. That's a station as well with Stephen Bogue and his okay. wife, Sarah, uh, being station masters there. But that was in their house. That attic is where um, uh, wow. Mr. Perry Sanford uh, were, were, uh, were, was housed. Uh, and that was the site of uh, the Kentucky raid. And so those right. items are are all within really close proximity, and that was also a station as well. Mm. Now, the school was not part of the Underground Railroad. It is a legacy of the Underground Railroad. I want to make that clear. It wasn't a station right. on there, but it was a legacy of the fact that we've had you know right. black and white kids coming up before and during the Civil War, uh, kids going to school there at the same time. So it's quite a legacy of, of what was occurring at the time all the kids and the populations that were starting to infiltrate Cass, Cass County and, and, you know, um, populating Cass County, I should say, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and creating the community, which uh, lives on today because many of these, these uh, people uh, settled. And uh, a lot of these people um, uh, the, like the uh, wax museum kids are descendants in many ways of, uh, mm -hmm. of a lot of the uh, players of the, uh, of the Underground Railroad. Wow. Yeah, Perry Sanford um, went on to Battle Creek because we have him on our uh, history wall that we're going to be putting up at our museum. He was one. He was a resident of Battle Creek after the, I believe he was one of the ones that came from after the Kentucky raid. Is that correct? And he he was taken out yes. of town. I, he stayed behind in Battle Creek or he at least was there for a while because we have him as a part of our history as well. Yeah, yes. um, Michael, he, he stayed there until um, he died. He uh, worked right. there in Battle Creek until the day he died. So. Right, okay, so that's that's yeah, the he, story he, behind him, yeah. yeah but so he was he kind of chased from... out of, of Cass County, right, because of that raid, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, but the rest of them went on to, to uh, crossed over into Canada. But he was one. Of, there was three or four of them from the raid that stayed behind in Battle Creek, from yeah, what um, I, I understand. What, yeah, William William Casey um um stayed there as well. Okay, yeah, um, that's an, a familiar name actually, to me. Yeah, yeah, and he actually um was part of a group of um, blacks that they sent to the convention, uh -huh. the national convention. Yeah, uh, William Casey was. Hmm. 
Yeah, we talked about the Kentucky slave rate in the last time we were on, but that was quite significant because that was the largest, that resulted in the largest conveyance of, um, you know, fugitive slaves being transported all at one time on such a short notice because it was all 40, it was like 40, according to what Erastus yeah. Hussey said in his memoir, in that article that he they wrote on him, that he said that was the largest, it was unexpected, it was the only time it happened, but they had that many come through at one time between 30 and 40 of them or something like that. And uh, they had to scramble because only three or four people in town knew what was going on. So they had, they couldn't have this, you know, so they figured it out and they put them all in one and they fed them soup and they had, um, they had all kinds of stuff, stories about what they fed them that night and stuff. And then they got them out the next morning, moved them on to Marshall the next day, but a few of them stayed behind. Um you know, and, and stayed in in Battle Creek, you know. And I think probably some probably stayed in Marshall, too, because there was a similar small community like that in Marshall, you know, that. Um... Um, was there, there was a raid, I believe, too, a Marshall raid, and I believe there was a South Bend raid and then a Kentucky raid here in, in Cassopolis, yeah. Vandalia. So these raids were, were occurring, um, I don't know how often, but often enough that it uh, – really was kind of led down to the path of the Civil War. Yeah, the incident in Marshall was around Adam Crosswhite. They came after Crosswhite, Adam and his right. family. Crosswhite. And he, mm -hmm. that one was probably the most significant. The, the Kentucky slave raid in Cass County was significant, but it didn't result in legal action, whereas the Crosswhite case did. The, slave, the Kentucky slave guys sued three of the businessmen in Marshall that facilitated Crosswhite's um, escaped that evening when they came and that turned into a lawsuit that had ramifications that changed and, and uh, came out with the stronger fugitive slave law which start the the set the country on the motion down the path towards the civil war um, that from that incident because that that drew a lot of uh, triggered a lot of things that went into a sequence of events that happened you know, the fugitive slave law became more strict. Um, a lot more people rebelled against it. The Quakers were outraged about it. And they were, they just further divided the country from that point forward. So Crosswhite could have almost be said to have, be the one that started the war, you know, in a long, in a long way, just from his stand against the Kentucky, uh, the guys from Kentucky that came for him, you know, so. There was, there was a lawsuit here in uh, 1850. Um so oh, that's right. They, yeah. There was, yeah. yeah. There was uh, one case that came to, to trial, and it was a hung jury, as it turned out. Mm. And okay. uh, two of the defendants settled the case, and it was dismissed without cost. And then the remaining cases were dismissed without cost in 1855. So that's a long wow. time for <laughs> these cases to have spread out. But there's a marker yeah. There's a marker at the 1899 courthouse in uh, in Cassopolis, and it, it uh, refers to uh, that case because it's wow. it's a heavily studied case by lawyers. Um, they they like mm -hmm. to look into those cases, and uh, the court costs were quite high though, and some of the defendants unfortunately were forced to sell their farms and move out of the area because of the court costs that were that high. So wow. it was a hung jury. But yet there was still some uh, fallout from from that case. Wow. 
there's so many uh, fascinating stories here in Michigan with with regards to this. There was uh, such an abolitionist history. I, I came across a story just uh, last month that I did on the podcast here about the, one of the founders of Berrien Springs was an attorney, and he went on to, after his wife passed, he left Berrien Springs and went on to Illinois, and then ultimately became the um, represented Dred Scott in that famous Dred Scott case that mm. uh, also turned the country on its ear towards the mm-hmm. Civil War as one of the triggers. You know, but uh, there's so many Clay, connections here in Michigan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Henry Clay was a senator, and on the Senate floor, he said Cass County mm. was a hotbed of abolitionism. So right. um, yep. it, it was it was well known. Little a little county like Cass County could have such uh, such an influence yep. in national politics, and I think you know that can live on today. I think that still still lives on today. But uh, yeah, well, it's really like, great Michael, that you guys are working hard to preserve the legacy of that. You know, thank you. I noticed Jennifer's hand. Jennifer, did you have something to add? Well, uh, yeah. How we were going to utilize the school once it was stabilized physically and restore yeah. it physically, we are going to uh, use it as a demonstration site uh, for Michigan uh, Prairie Education. And it is also going to become a repository for artifacts, memorabilia documents uh, uh, from all of the one room integrated school houses in Cass County. So it will, wow. it, it is Brownsville School and it has, you know, being a number one, it has a marvelous story to tell but it will also be honoring and celebrating all of the um, uh, public one-room schools that were integrated in the county. Wow. And we, we, we also hope to have things um, similar to the Wax Museum as far as having children participate in, in um, mm-hmm. typical you know things uh, from the 1840s. And uh, maybe just also have uh, events there like picnics or box socials, things that really would have happened at one-room schools throughout uh, Michigan's mm-hmm. history. Well, that's just great. It's great to see those types of uh, buildings being kept alive by all the hard work that you guys are doing. So if somebody wants to donate to help you with your efforts and maybe throw some money your way to give you a little bit more of a boost to maybe get the materials and things that you need for the coming year, uh, where do they go through the website uh, urscc.org or is there another place uh, they they certainly can go to the website urscc.org brownsville uh-huh. friends of brownsville school has also uh, created um, a website uh, and it is www.brownsvilleschool.org and there okay. is also a donate uh, section there it it and it goes directly to URSCC with a notation that the money is to be used for the restoration of Brownsville School. Good. And you can also mail a check uh, to uh, URSCC at the uh, post office box in Vandalia. And somebody needs to help me with the post office box number <laughs> because I don't remember that. Is it two? I think it's uh, 224. Oh, I okay. was going to say that. I was. Yeah, and but they can no- probably find that on the website as well yes, if they wanted yes, to mail you something. Yes, certainly can okay. find that on the website and just right. make a notation in the memo line that it's for Brownsville School. Thank Fabulous. you, well, That's great. <laughs> well, this is great, guys. I'm glad you were able to join me today. We learned a lot about some of the stuff that you're doing, as well as some of the history of these incredible places. And it's always exciting. You guys always seem to have some 
new developments out there. I definitely want to have you back on at some point in the future, and we'll talk some more maybe later in the summer and uh, get some more people out to see these incredible landmarks that you are working so hard to preserve. Any last-minute suggestions or things that you would mention, Mike? Um, Just come out and visit us. Um, You know, we can talk about it. You can go to our website. Um, You can access our library on our website. Um, But to come into the buildings and see them for yourself is really exciting. And uh, it's kind of living history, you know, when you walk into a building. So we just invite everybody to come out, participate um, with us, and uh, have fun with it. History is fun. Great. Anything last minute to say there, Cindy? Um. I want to mention that our Underground Railroad Days are the second week in July. And so please come and visit us then Okay. And any final parting thoughts there, uh, Jennifer? Uh, no, I think I've said my piece. Yeah, I, I, do hope, <laughs> yeah I, I do hope that people come and enjoy. There's, uh, I, I'm always awed. Uh, I'm a docent occasionally at the Benign House, and I am always awed. Uh, by people's appreciation and and respect for the story. Um, people are moved. Uh, people are uh, inspired to go upstairs, like Cindy says, and, and just uh, mm-hmm. get immersed and read. Um, I'm always proud to be uh, affiliated in a part of the organization. That's great. Well, you guys are definitely outstanding, and it's quite a coordinated effort to have so many buildings and so many tours to put it all together. And it's great that you have a great team of people over there. Um, So I have been speaking with the members of the Underground Railroad Society of Cass County. And I'm going to put all the links to their organization in the show notes for this episode. You definitely should put it on your list of things to do this summer to go take a tour of these wonderful buildings that they have out there and they are very knowledgeable and they have a lot of stuff i recommend you go out there and uh, take a little bit of time to really absorb it and enjoy the tour and to get the full tour do the uh, map tour that they offer and until next time when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.